Hi, welcome to the Revealed Apologetics podcast. My name is Eli Ayala, founder and host of Revealed Apologetics. If you've been blessed by the content of this podcast or the Revealed Apologetics YouTube channel, please consider supporting us. You can support Revealed Apologetics by generously giving at revealedapologetics.com. Choose the donate button and give either through PayPal or Venmo. Or you can simply write a brief review of the podcast on iTunes. Your support is greatly appreciated. If you're interested in having me speak at your event, you can connect with me by filling out the contact info on the Revealed Apologetics website homepage or simply email me at revealedapologetics at gmail.com. Lastly, if you're interested in signing up for my online apologetics course, information on Presup University can also be found on the Revealed Apologetics website. Folks can sign up anytime and the course content will be sent to them. Once again, thank you so much for your support. I hope you enjoy this episode. All right, welcome back to another episode of Revealed Apologetics. I'm your host, Eli Ayala, and um, just to give folks a heads up, um, I have been receiving uh, messages, uh, not a big deal, but a lot of people saying, hey, dude, why do you go live so late? Uh, so uh, for those who uh, follow the show, you guys know that I, I typically go live uh, around like 9 p.m. Eastern. Um, which is really the only time I, I can go uh, live because uh, that's when, when the kids are down and I have uh, some free time. So um, if I don't plan to go live uh, in the evening um, and you notice that I have, um, you know, I, I'll be doing a show and it was completely unplanned. You know, there are people like, dude, I didn't even know you, you were going live today. Uh, I, don't, I didn't even know you were doing a show. Uh, in reality, I don't even know when I'm doing a show sometimes. So there are a couple of episodes that I have uh, when I have uh, special guests and things like that where um, I, I kind of plan a specific date. Uh, but for the most part, um, I, I, go, I wake up, I go to work, I'm thinking about stuff, I'm listening to podcasts or maybe something on YouTube. Um, and then on my way home, I lick my finger like this and I, I, I feel which way the wind is, is blowing and I say, okay. I think I'm going to go live today. So, uh, and, and sometimes opportunities at home provide me uh, an opportunity to actually go into, uh, you know, uh, it provides me a, an opportunity to kind of do these videos. So for, for, for right now, it is 6.01 p.m. Eastern. Um, and uh, I have been blessed with an empty house. So my my wife and kids are out of the house. My in-laws uh, are, are out and about. And so um, I had the opportunity right now to to go live. And so that's why uh, I'm live today. It's completely unexpected. And I posted and shared uh, the the um, the link uh, probably like an hour and a half ago. So um, hopefully uh, folks uh, will still watch the content. I know that I tend to get more viewers when uh, I plan ahead, but hopefully um, folks are interested in presuppositional apologetics. Um because that's what we're going to be talking about today. So um, I've been covering a wide range of theological topics. I've been doing a lot of things in uh, with Eastern Orthodoxy. Um, if folks are interested, uh, I was just recently on uh, Vocab Malone's YouTube channel, The Street Apologist. You type that in on YouTube. Um, and I joined him with uh, his guest, Dr. Bob, who engaged in a debate with an Eastern Orthodox uh, gentleman um, over the issue of... Uh, 
was it baptism or the priesthood? There we go. The priesthood, though, we kind of commented and gave some of our thoughts with respect to um, that specific debate. So if you're interested, you can check out Vocab Malone's uh, channel. Now, there are a lot of apologetic uh, YouTube channels out there, and some of them are uh, they can be categorized within the range of kind of like easy and applicable. Uh, and then you have kind of the highfalutin, uh, you know, uh, YouTube channels that cover very heavy theological and philosophical topics. And I suppose we cover some of those things as well. But today um, I am choosing to simplify. OK, um, I want to talk about really my my apolog my apologetics hero. Um, I have I have many. Uh, he's definitely not the only person that I've been heavily influenced by, but uh, he's definitely someone that has um, exercised a a great impact upon my own thinking. Um, and so I really want to spend some time talking about Greg Bonson um, and his uh, unique contributions to presuppositionalism. But then I want to move into kind of an outline that Dr. Bonson uh, provided in uh, in many of his books, but one one of his books particularly. And I want to kind of unpack that and perhaps simplify what Bonson has simplified. Does that make sense? So so, so you have Van Til, who is very difficult to read. And then you have Bonson, who dumbs down Van Til. And I don't mean that in a pejorative sense, but he dumbs down Van, T Van Til. And then I'm trying right now to dumb down Bonson. Okay. And hopefully... Uh, when I try to dumb down Bonson or simplify Bonson, uh, you will be able to make a distinction between being simplistic and simplifying. I don't mean to be simplistic. I want to simplify and uh, perhaps encourage folks uh, to move beyond um, apologetic theory. Okay, um, a lot of people who are attracted to channels like this uh, or channels that talk about apologetic methodology, uh, sometimes uh, people just get all caught up with um, wanting to learn about kind of this, uh, the methodology issues, the debates and things like that. I want to move beyond that. I don't want to focus so much on the differences between presuppositionalism and uh, other apologetic methodologies. Listen, uh, Bonson said this, multiple people uh, have said this. I have said this to people. I strongly believe that God can strike a blow with a crooked stick. If you are not a presuppositionalist, fine. I, I wish you were. Um, I think it is uh, uh, the position that is reflected in scripture. But if you're not, I completely understand that God can use you and has used folks even in my own life. Uh, has have used have used people from other traditions uh, to help me and guide me and teach me, and so there is much to learn from those that you disagree with. So, I'm I'm arguing, and all this to say, I'm arguing that if you are not a presuppositionalist, presuppositional methodology has a lot to offer in terms of gleaning from the general principles of the method, and hopefully, when you're in the apologetic context, you can glean from those ideas and. Uh, make some segue uh, by attacking the presuppositions of the unbeliever um, and uh, using that as part of your uh, defense of the faith, along with some of the other approaches that you may um, uh, utilize. Now, again, whether you're able to do that consistently is another issue, uh, but uh, I don't want to get into those to those differences there. All right. Well, um, just real quick, I've been out of the game for a little bit because I, I was recovering from the Rona. All right. I had I had covid uh, uh, like two or three weeks ago. And so I was out of commission for a while um, and I wasn't able to study or, or read anything. I, I thought I would have time. I thought I'd have kind of the light symptoms, but it kind of hit me really hard. So I haven't really been reading and studying a lot uh, up until recently. And so um, I want to give people a heads up on the sort of things that I've been um, that I've been reading. So 
let's see here. So here's some light reading um, that I, I highly recommend. I'm a presuppositionalist, right? This this is heresy what I'm about to put up, but I've actually been reading uh, R.C. Sproul, A Life, uh, which is by uh, Stephen Nichols. And of course, it is about the life ministry um, of R.C. Sproul, who is a, a precious Christian brother who is now with the Lord. Um, and he was an excellent, excellent theologian and apologist. And I could say that even with my strong disagreements with respect to the methodology and, of course, um, with respect to some of the criticisms that he has lodged um, against the presuppositional method, most specifically in his book, Classical Apologetics, which I actually own. Um, so uh, I've been reading that. Um, I've been reading this classic. Uh, this is a classic <laughs> reformed uh, uh, book uh, on predestination by Lorraine Botner. Um, I don't know. I've been studying some of the philosophical issues, but I, I wanted to kind of get into one of the, the the sorts of books that you read when you become kind of like a cage a cage stage Calvinist. It's usually something like this, or or maybe like uh, you know A. W. Pink, uh, Sovereignty of God. Uh, I don't know. I like the way uh, he writes. I like the way he communicates uh, the Reformed faith. Um, and so I've been dipping into some of these, especially the chapters with respect to um, um, irresistible grace. Okay, and um, just looking for different ways to clearly present um, the Reformed perspective. I've also been uh, diving into this book here, The Mystery of the Trinity, A Trinitarian Approach to the Attributes of God by Vern Poitras, who um, I actually had on my show to talk about the Trinity. And so uh, this is a really good book uh, as well, uh, which I highly recommend. And um, of course, now that I've kind of wet my whistle in those areas, I kind of want to return back to my focus on, on presuppositionalism uh, because I know that the majority of people who uh, watch uh, this, this channel, um, they're very much interested in learning the methodology. So since we are focusing on Greg Bonson today, um, I have to flex a little bit, okay? You know, I got to throw down, let you know what's what's going down, all right? Uh, so I I've, I've have promoted these books in uh, previous videos, but... Uh, here are some new Greg Bonson books that uh, have been put out by American Vision. Uh, the first one in the series of three uh, was, uh, or is rather, and this is kind of awkward for the camera, uh, is against, oh, 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 there we go, Against All Opposition, Defending the Christian Worldview by Greg Bonson. Um, and it's based upon uh, some of the lectures that, that Dr. Bonson um, uh, presented. I don't remember exactly. I think they might be a mixture of various lectures that he um, that he presented. And of course, this new one that just came out, The Impossibility of the Contrary, Without God, You Can't Prove Anything. And again, also based upon a series of lectures that um, uh, that he gave to maybe some high school students or seminary students. I'm not sure. And then there's another book in the series, but I have the old school version, okay? And that is Pushing the Antithesis, okay? Uh, yes, I see uh, some comments there. I call Dr. Bonson the uh, Tupac Shakur of apologetics. If you know anything about Tupac, you know, West Coast hip-hop rapper, uh, when he when he died, uh, he was coming out with albums even after he died. So how's he, how's he doing that? Well, Bonson coming out with books even after his death. Uh, but I have an old version of Pushing the Antithesis, the Apologetic Methodology of Greg Bonson. I get asked all the time, um, what book should I go to to teach my teenager presuppositional apologetics? Actually, it is very easy to be intimidated by a title such as Pushing the Antithesis. However, this actually was uh, based upon a series of lectures that Dr. Bonson gave to high school students before they went to college. 
So while it sounds complicated, this is an excellent book complete with um, homework assignments, uh, possible projects you can do based upon the principles that he lays out in each chapter. Um, and there are some study questions, right? Uh, you know, read a chapter with a, a group of young people and talk about some of the study questions and you can kind of dig into some of the foundational issues of, um, of the presuppositional method. So I highly recommend pushing the antithesis. All right. Um, of course, uh, we cannot exclude this classic as well. This is kind of a new cover. I used to have the old school one, uh, but this again, I think uh, this I ordered from, I think I ordered from American Vision. Um, and of course, this is um, Always Ready, okay? Directions for Defending the Christian Faith. And this is actually the book that I'm going to be focusing on in this video uh, as I break down the methodology. So I'll be sharing the screen. I have a digital version of this. Highly recommend uh, folks read Always Ready. This is typically the traditional go-to when someone says, you know, like, I want to learn presuppositionalism. Where do I go? Most people point uh, point folks to Always Ready, which um, I think for uh, valid reasons. Now, I do have a gem that I I think you cannot find anymore. It's not available on um, uh, on Amazon, or if it is, it it costs like a couple of hundred dollars in your right arm or something like that. I don't know why, but uh, this is by Jamin. I think it's Jamin Hubner. Okay, and this is the portable presuppositionalist. If by some act of divine providence you are able to come across this, I would highly recommend the portable presuppositionalist. Not only does it give you uh, give you some of the historical background as to the development of presuppositional thought and Van Til's um, uh, influences that that led him in the direction of taking this approach, um, but it also has categories like logic, the Word of God. Uh, evidence, and it actually has a list of uh, quotes from presuppositionalists that really um, define those important elements of our theology and connects it with uh, the apologetic methodology. And towards the back, there are transcripts of debates between atheists and presuppositionalism. I think uh, Doug Wilson and Christopher Hitchin, there's a, a, a transcript of their cross-examination here. There um, is a transcript in here of uh, James White's debate with Dan Barker. And so, of course, it highlights the cross-examination where there is a clear presentation of a presuppositional approach. There's some stuff with Saiten uh, Bruggenkate uh, and others. And, of course, you have the famous Greg Bontz and Gordon Stein interaction. And my favorite part, there's actually a good portion of the transcript of the debate between Greg Bonson and R.C. Sproul over apologetic methodology. So excellent resource. If you could find it, you probably can't. So this is a tease. But if you can, all the more power to you. Also, OK, this is a really good book. If I mean, this this episode is going to be primarily focused on Greg Bonson. The Standard Bearer, a Feshrif for Greg Bonson, is an excellent, excellent book. Uh, the chapters cover topics that were near and dear to Dr. Bonson's heart. And of course, uh, there is uh, a laying out of those uh, specific um, views. There's Bonson's eschatology in here. And of course, probably his most popular uh, uh, article, it's not Bonson's article, but written by um, uh, Bonson's uh, student who was really kind of supposed to be the guy who the torch was going to be passed. But Dr. Michael Butler writes an article on the transcendental argument. Um, and it is, uh, it's actually really good. I know some people, you know, in the presuppositional realm, they'll say, well, you know, the Butler article is, is it was, it made some good points. It's excellent. Uh, I, there might be some nitpicky points here and there, but it is an excellent summary of a transcendental argument. Uh, the impact and influence of Bonson, 
um, and um, answering some of the key objections to the transcendental argument. I'd highly recommend this. I think this is still available on Amazon somewhere. Um, also, the question that always comes up with respect to uh, presuppositional apologetics is, well, if I'm a presuppositionalist, does that mean I can't use evidence? Uh, no, that doesn't mean you can't use evidence. You can use evidence, and there is a way to use evidence within a presuppositional framework. So you might want to check out Tom Nataro's uh, book, Van Til and the Use of Evidence. This thing is a tiny little guy, okay? Um, and uh, it covers a whole host of uh, topics. Matter of fact, let me see if I can go into the table of contents. And uh, yeah, let me see. There we go. Let me see if I can put that against the screen. It might be blurry because I'm in the way. I don't know if this is even working. Ha! I'm so sorry. Uh, at any rate, it's a really good book. If you could find it, totally pick it up. And of course, you can't study presuppositionalism without studying the man, Van Til. Okay? Van Til is considered the father of presuppositionalism. And so, of course, you want to engage Van Til. But I would, I would recommend that you enter the realm of Van Til through Bonson. Bonson is kind of a, a way to grasp the general principles of what Van Til's saying. And then Van Til, of course, uh, is a much more difficult uh, read, although um, his books are filled with um, really helpful nuggets that summarize key components of the presuppositional uh, method. All right. Okay, well, that's that's it for me bragging about uh, the books. Um, I don't want to give any impression. I have a lot of books. And when I say I'm reading books, it's not like I'm sitting there reading every single chapter and taking these copious notes. Um, I, I, I read a chapter here, a section here, uh, just to kind of have um, elements of the methodology reinforced in my mind. Um, I like to always encourage folks to, uh, when they study or they want to try to remember some theological point or, or whatever, when you are studying material, it's important to study in such a way that allows the content to be sort of like the background music playing in your mind. So when I read a book, for example, I will also listen to material and it will be part of my drive to work or I take a walk around the block and um, I, I try to have information that reinforces the specific things that I'm reading. So that's a helpful way that, that I study and engage these uh, topics. All right. Well, let's jump right in specifically to Greg Bonson. Greg Bonson was a, uh, a Christian philosopher um, from the Calvinist tradition. Uh, denominationally, uh, Greg Bonson was part of the OPC, the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. Um, he held very uh, traditionally to the Westminster Confession of Faith, um, but was infamous uh, in many regards for his position concerning uh, the role and importance of the Old Testament law within our modern context. So uh, one element of Bonson that I have not um, taken the time to study as much as I, I would have liked is his positions uh, concerning theonomy. Um, so that is a, a, an interesting topic in and of itself, and I'm actually not going to explore those elements um, uh, here in this episode. Uh, but be that as it may, uh, Greg Bonson was a Reformed Calvinist philosopher, apologist, debater, traveling teacher, and speaker. Um, and it is important to mention, uh, if I'm going to be breaking down Bonson, you cannot break down Bonson and separate Bonson from his Reformed tradition, okay? His Reformed theology is very much what informed his apologetic. It was very much a part of what convinced Dr. Bonson of the truth and power of Van Til's apologetic, okay? Thank you, by the way. So, uh, uh, Stingray says, here, let me put you up there. <laughs> Probably made a fool of myself. Uh, K7 Stingray says, 
Jamin Hubner is pronounced Jamin Hubner. Hubner, is that because he got the umlaut going on there, right? Yep, my bad. I think I called him Hubner or something like that. Thank you for that. I appreciate that. Um, uh, well, look, look what you did. You threw me, you threw me off. Okay. That's right. I, I know. I know what I was talking about. So, so yeah. So, uh, someone is is saying in the comments we have uh, uh, wolves do apologetics. Hello, uh, Mr. Dumphy. How are you doing? He's a friend of mine. Um, he says, does presuppositional apologetics rely on reformed theology? Uh, actually, it does. Um, some people would disagree. You even have people from different uh, traditions utilizing presuppositionalism, but I would argue uh, that they do not do so in a way that is consistent. Okay. For example, you have certain um, Eastern Orthodox folks use presuppositional apologetics. You even have, although the names escape me at the moment, you even have some Roman Catholics trying to argue presuppositionally. Um, so I don't think that that's an appropriate way to do it. I don't think it, you, you can do it successfully and consistently. I very much am of the conviction that presuppositional apologetics um, is the apologetic methodology that flows from a consistent application of Reformed theology to the realm of apologetics. Okay. Uh, Bonson believed that Van Til, when constructing the presuppositional method, was purposely trying to develop a methodology that was more consistent with the Reformed tradition than what he perceived, say, uh, the classical approach uh, would have done. We could easily acknowledge that there is a strong classical apologetic tradition within Reformed theology. Uh, Van Til acknowledges that, but points out, hey, in, in adopting a classical methodology within a reformed context, there are some inconsistencies here, and here's I'm going to address them in my writings. And so uh, he tries to correct those things and highlights really the value of thinking along more presuppositional lines. Okay, so um, he's a Calvinist. He's a philosopher. They are not distinct from each other. They are very much unique and a part of uh, Dr. Bonson's apologetic and complete outlook uh, on life. Uh, Dr. Bonson was not simply uh, a philosopher in the generic sense. Um, he comes from uh, what is called the analytic tradition of philosophy. And so he was an expert in areas of epistemology and uh, linguistic analysis, uh, which we won't get into detail. But you have kind of a, um, a two uh, different philosophical schools of thought, which I think is very interesting because the school of thought that Bonson came from, which was the more analytic tradition, is actually very different than the school of philosophical thought that his teacher Van Til came from. So uh, Van Til tended to be more of a, um, in line with kind of a, a continental uh, approach to philosophy, whereas um, uh, Bonson came from a more analytic approach. Now, uh, when you take a look at the more uh, um, the, the sort of philosophy that Van Til held. Uh, that sort of philosophy tends to be more of the big picture approach to philosophical questions, all right? And that's why you have Van Til speak of like systems and worldview contexts and things like that. Whereas when you listen and read to, uh, you know, read Greg Bonson's literature, it's more specific and, and taking a care and great accuracy with the utilization of certain philosophical terms and concepts. So um, you have, uh, again, two presuppositionalists but are functioning within the backdrop of uh, two very different um, philosophical uh, traditions, okay? Um, and I think this is important because what Van Til says with respect to big picture, I think sets the groundwork, the soil, if you will, for other aspects of the more specified nuanced uh, terms that and concepts that uh, must be used when we're engaging in apologetic uh, interaction. Uh, Bonson is able to clarify and focus and define uh, some of those key terms and concepts in a way that's a little bit different than that bigger picture of, um, of Van Til. Okay. Um, now, 
when we speak of uh, the contribution of, of Greg Bonson in terms of his specific application of presuppositional apologetics, what I would say is one of the biggest contributions of, of Bonson is, uh, number one, it's more of a recognition of his gifted – it is his how, – how can I say this? In my opinion, one of the best um, contributions that Bonson gives to the presuppositional method is simply the clarity with which he was able to present it, okay? Uh, as I said before, Van Til is a difficult read. But when you listen to, to Dr. Bonson, which is very different than actually reading his books, Dr. Bonson's books are easy to read. You can follow along. But to listen to the lectures um, actually gives you a different side of Bonson that is more clarifying than some of his books, in my opinion. Um, Dr. Bonson was a gifted teacher and a gifted communicator. And to be able to bridge the gap between academia and the average believer, I think Dr. Bonson was uniquely gifted in his ability to do that. Okay. Um, and so uh, that's why Greg Bonson was very popular in the 90s uh, and in the uh, after his, his Gordon Stein debate uh, in the mid 80s. Okay. He was able to communicate these sorts of things. Now, I remember when I visited a Reformed Theological Seminary um, to pay a visit to Dr. John Frame. Um, and, and I don't want to give the impression that I'm that I'm name dropping. I'm not personal friends with John Frame. Um, I was familiar with uh, his work, and I happened to be in Orlando, and I happened to have a couple of hours to spare, and so I was able to escape, uh, you know, my family for a little bit. They were doing something with some friends we were staying with, and I was able to visit uh, John Frame. Uh, and um, unfortunately, as I was talking to, to Dr. Frame, instead of talking about Frame and his work. I was asking him a bunch of questions about Greg Bonson, uh, which he didn't mind talking about at all. Um, but he said, here was the heart of, of Dr. Bonson. And I want you guys to listen to this, regardless of the apologetic tradition that you come from. Okay. Uh, doc, Dr. Frame told me that the heart of what Dr. Bonson wanted to do was he wanted to teach believers to take it to the streets. That was a phrase that Dr. Bonson used to take apologetics to the streets. This is the risk and the danger of consuming too much YouTube apologetics. And there's the same thing for this channel. It's the same thing for all the things that you listen to. The danger in listening to these things, uh, this, this content is that you simply are drawn to it because of the intellectual stimulation, but you are not actually going out of your way and using the material in real life interaction. Okay meeting people face-to-face, -face, engaging people in conversation, creating relationships and uh, prolonged uh, relationships with people that show a true love and intentionality uh, and care for the person that you're speaking with and evangelizing and defending and these sorts of things, okay? Uh, again, you can do those things through various mediums. I'm not um, I'm not saying that the internet's a, a, a bad, you, you know, you can't do that. I'm, this is what I do, right? Um, it can be done, but Dr. Bonson was very much into taking things to the streets. And here's one of the ways that you can fulfill that, okay? And it's mentioned in, actually, in his Feshrif. Um, I'm not going to try to find the page. Uh, but uh, one of the ways, or one, uh, a few of the ways in which Dr. Bonson tried to, quote, take it to the streets was that he very much wanted to bring the, this apologetic, this presuppositional approach to the church, being connected to the church and teaching. He gave lectures, he gave workshops, 
He gave various talks. He put on very well. He was a part of uh, various conferences and discussions and debates so that people can see the presuppositional method, um, what it looks like uh, when you use it within the context of debate to see the strength of the methodology. Okay. Let us not stay in the meta apologetic realm where we are focusing upon theory so much that we are almost never engaging in the practice. Teaching believers. Uh, teaching them how to engage the apologetic task was something that was very much at the heart of what Dr. Bonson wanted to do. And that's what he meant by taking it to the streets. Don't just learn presuppositional apologetics, do it. Um, and there's a comment here. I want to put this on the screen because I a hundred percent believe this. Okay. Redefine living says you can take it to the YouTube streets also. Yes, 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 yes. Okay. YouTube is really the new mission field, okay? Some of the videos that I put out, some of the videos that other apologists put out, this will be viewed by sometimes thousands of people, hundreds of thousands of people. So when I say take it to the streets, uh, and again, Bonson uh, said that at a time where uh, the internet situation wasn't the same, right? Uh, um, uh, well, I guess, I guess it's non-existent, right? I think he passed away in 1995. I'm not sure, uh, you know, he wasn't able to appreciate kind of the, the technological advances that we have now. Uh, definitely would have been a game changer if he was around for that. But be that as it may, uh, yeah, take it to the YouTube streets, okay? But be very, very, very careful. This is, the, this, is the, this is the danger of taking it to the YouTube streets, which I encourage. We must do, right? We need, and I'm, and I'm so encouraged. Um, I, I am in the apologetics realm. I'm a, I'm a YouTuber myself, and I, I know a lot of Christian YouTubers. I am encouraged not only to see the established YouTube channels that are doing well, but I'm encouraged when people express their desire to start their own YouTube channels and do interviews, do teachings and things like that. We need more of those sorts of things. And I'm encouraged. And that's one of the ways we can take it to the streets. But be very careful because there's this weird thing about um, YouTube and using computers that tends to depersonalize our interactions. Okay. When first Peter chapter three, verse 15 says that we are to set apart Christ as Lord in our hearts, always being ready to give a reason for the hope for those who ask us reason for the hope that's in us. Um, yet doing so with gentleness and respect, we tend to leave off that gentleness and respect element when we're engaging online. And then we tend to kind of use the gentleness and respect for the most part when we're talking to people face to face. Don't ever allow. Okay. Don't ever allow the internet and the computer screen to um, uh, negatively affect that profound truth of taking these issues to unbelievers with gentleness and respect. This is vitally important. If you are not, if you are not defending the faith with gentleness and respect and with an acknowledgement that the, even the unbeliever is made in the image of God, right? If you are not treating that person with respect, then you are not doing apologetics appropriately. And that, and that means even if your arguments are ironclad, okay? Because it's not just what we say in terms of our defense. It is also how we conduct ourselves. How we conduct ourselves is part of the defense. I'm going to say that again. How we conduct ourselves is also part of the defense. And you've heard me say this multiple times on my show. It doesn't matter what you say. If you're a jerk, no one's going to listen to you. No one's going to want to hear what you have to say. Okay. And, um, and, and as I am a hardcore presuppositionalist, unfortunately within the presuppositional camp, we tend to be very 
cutthroat and in a lot of cases, very disrespectful, which cuts off lines of communication. And of course, a presuppositionalism gets a bad rap because of the misbehavior of some presuppositionalists, which is quite unfortunate because I think presuppositionalism has so much to bring uh, to the table. All right. Um, and again, this was very much part of Dr. Bonson's heart. Now, did he even do this, you know, with perfection? Of course not. Right. Um, this is the ideal, right, that we're able to, to do things in a way that honors Christ. Um, it is always a process of sanctification in all of this. When we are engaging in apologetic interaction, uh, it is a battlefield and it can be very difficult to do those things. But I think with respect to how Dr. Bonson uh, presented himself, for the most part, I think he did a great job exemplifying gentleness and respect, while at the same time simultaneously demonstrating logical precision, rational argumentation, and an apologetic methodology that that flowed out of uh, biblical principles, which is very, very important. Okay? All right. So let's take a look at um, how Bonson um, really laid out the methodology in summary form. Okay? And I want to walk through this and kind of expand on some parts uh, that, that he's written. I'm going to share my screen. And then towards the end, I'll take some some questions. So please feel free. I, I do see a couple of questions uh, as well um, already in the chat. As I always say, preface your question with the letter Q or the word question, okay? Um, and then I'll, I'll address it, okay? All right, real quick, this is completely random, but I wanna say this now before I forget since there are some people uh, listening now uh, before I, I didn't wanna say it at the beginning. I have scheduled on Thursday uh, a, a an interview with Dr. Matthew Barrett on the topic of Sola Scriptura. If you don't know who Dr. Matthew Barrett is, um, let me just tell you, I'm very excited for this interview. We're going to be talking about uh, the question, is Sola Scriptura true? Which is a very important element, even within presuppositional thought, the idea of Sola Scriptura. There's a connection there. But unfortunately, uh, something came up and Dr. Barrett had to reschedule. So I have given him a new date and I am waiting for his response. He totally wants to come on. He's looking forward to it, but I need to lock in that date. So if you guys saw a, a post that I gave a couple of days ago um, talking about uh, having Dr. Barrett on the show on Thursday at 6.30 p.m., scratch that. It's going to be later this month, um, and uh, I will definitely let people know uh, when that's going down. But I'm super excited. Uh, here's the thing. Greg Bonson believed in Sola Scriptura. And Protestant Christians believe in Sola Scriptura, but it is very much connected to a presuppositional approach as well, because it is related to that question of ultimate authorities, which of course is, is vitally important. All right. Now, whew, okay, good. Um, am I talking too fast? If people can give me kind of a, a, a quick little comment here and there, I'll slow down. I want to slow down even more now that I'm going to be going through uh, kind of sharing my screen and walking through some stuff, but whew, let me slow down a bit. All right. So let's take a look, okay? Uh, I have uh, here the digital copy of the book, Always Ready, Directions for Defending the Faith. And the reason why I wanted to uh, kind of take a look at this uh, book as a way to breaking down uh, the apologetic methodology of Greg Bonson uh, is because there is an awesome section here where he summarizes in outline form all of the key components of the presuppositional method. That is actually one of the reasons why I encourage people to get always ready because it, the way it's organized is actually very helpful when you're studying. Okay. So let's take a look uh, at the summary of the apologetic methodology. This is from chapters, uh, summarizing chapters 13 through 17. Okay. Now the first point uh, that he has as kind of the category of which he's going to cover is 
defining the nature of the apologetic situation. Okay. This is hugely important. Okay. I would say that um, knowing the nature of the apologetic situation is a way to provide the context for the apologetic engagement. Okay. When you do quote apologetics, apologetics is never done and nothing is ever done in a vacuum. There is always a, a context that gives meaning to the engagement that you are engaging in. I guess that that's, oh, I think that's, I think that's right. Okay. And so an important aspect of understanding the presuppositional method is understanding the nature of the situation. Okay. This is very, very important. I want you guys to listen very closely. Look what he says here. Point one, the controversy between the believer and unbeliever is in principle an antithesis between two complete systems of thought involving ultimate commitments and assumptions. Let's let's rest there for a second. This is huge, okay? Um, Van Til uh, often told Dr. Bonson, he said, Greg, listen, always remember to push the antithesis, which, by the way, was the title of the book, Pushing the Antithesis, okay? That's on purpose. The idea of in antithesis is a central feature of understanding the nature of the dispute between the unbeliever and believer. It is not simply a dispute over a fact over here or a fact over there. Rather, there is a point of opposition and antithesis, if you will, between two complete systems of thought, two complete worldviews, okay? This is very important because it is related to the notion that Van Til discusses that when we are defending the Christian worldview, we are not defending the Christian worldview block by block, piece by piece. I don't talk about the resurrection here and then build another case here and then build another case there and one by one. No, we are arguing a system that provides meaning and cogency and intelligibility to the individual elements of the system. The fact that exists within the system only has meaning and significance as it relates to the broader system. That's why Van Til focused on the big picture and highlighted the importance of the system. Okay. And so the, to, the, to understand the nature of the apologetic situation is to understand that it's not one argument versus another argument, you're going back and forth. It is worldview against worldview, okay? And this is going to be very much apologetically useful when folks try to object against the Christian faith and bring various objections. Um, you're going to have to push the idea that, wait a minute, okay, this objection that you're making actually is easily answered within the Christian worldview because there are elements within my broader perspective that when taken into consideration, the problem you suggest is not, in fact, the problem, okay? So we argue system, not in piecemeal fashion, okay? All right, let, uh, let us continue here. So he says, the controversy between the believer and unbeliever is, in principle, an antithesis between two complete systems of thought involving ultimate commitments and assumptions, okay? And this is dealing, really, this is really uh, what... Um, 
it, 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 it allows us to understand why presuppositional methodology is called presuppositional methodology, because we're dealing with ultimate commitments, assumptions, or presuppositions, ultimate commitments. Everyone has their ultimate authority. Everyone has, if I can use the word, everyone has their Bible. Okay. The Christian has the word of God as the ultimate authority. Okay. But the unbeliever has his or her own Bible. Their Bible may be some commitment to a philosophical axiom, uh, some philosophical system, or uh, if you're speaking to people from other faiths, it might be another holy book or, or whatever. Everyone has an ultimate commitment. And the nature of the apologetic interaction is ultimate commitment versus ultimate commitment. Worldview system versus worldview system. And the nature of the conflict is that these two systems are in diametric opposition or antithesis with one another. And we want to push that antithesis because we think, as Dr. James Anderson from, from RTS says, he's, he says that the Christian worldview can pay the bills on its claims. And we want the unbelievers worldview to demonstrate that they can pay the bills with respect to justifying their claims uh, that they make within their worldview context. Okay. So that is very important. Okay. All right. I see some more questions coming in. Excellent. Keep, keep them coming. Uh, I'll be moving along again, as always uh, towards the back end of the, the episode, I will address them. Okay. All right. Point two, even laws of thought and method along with factual evidence, the facts will be accepted and evaluated in light of one's governing presuppositions. Okay. Um, and that's just to say that our presuppositions affect how we interpret everything about everything. Okay. How I interpret the nature of humanity. What is man? That is a metaphysical question. And how I define man will very much be affected by my worldview commitments. Okay. So the nature of the apologetic situation includes this, this idea that presuppositions govern and color the interpretation of the facts. And that's kind of the background music that needs to be playing in your mind. This is not something you necessarily have to say in the interaction between the believer and unbeliever. It may be appropriate to say that. Uh, but when we're talking about this, the nature of the situation, um, these are things that could either be playing in the background of your mind and form the context of the sorts of things you're going to say. Or if the situation calls for it, you could you know, tell the unbeliever, hey, this is how I see the nature of this dispute and here's why. Okay, and, we, and you go into the reasons why you feel that way. Okay, point three, Dr. Bonson says all chains of argumentation, especially over matters of ultimate personal importance, trace back to and depend upon starting points, which are taken to be self-evidence. And thus, and this is kind of a controversial element of the presuppositional method, thus circularity in debate will be unavoidable. However, not all circles are intelligible or valid. Okay. Now, again, this is important because this uh, defines for us the nature of the dispute. When you get to that ultimate foundation, circularity is going to become an issue, but he points out, and this has been drawn out even more in Dr. Bonson's writings, Van Til explains it, and just about every other uh, presuppositional book explains it. Uh, not all circles are fallacious. Now, I do know that there are people who watch this show, who may be listening to what I'm saying, they do not hold to a presuppositional uh, perspective. Perhaps uh, they hold to a form of evidentialism. Um, and hence, with respect to the justification of our claims and, and ultimate foundations, there are people who hold to uh, a philosophical perspective known as foundationalism. 
Uh, so you do have folks who um, will disagree uh, with the necessity of starting with a circular foundation, but that's not a point I'm going to address here. Okay. But there are people who challenge this notion. And of course, um, presuppositionalists have their various responses uh, to um, the, the objections to circularity. Okay. All right. Uh, point four, thus appeals to logic, fact, and personality may be necessary. Okay. This is important, but they are not apologetically adequate. What is needed is not piecemeal replies, probabilities, or isolated evidences, but rather an attack upon the underlying presuppositions of the unbeliever's system of thought, okay? When we are engaging the unbeliever, we are not focusing simply on a, a piecemeal approach, okay? Because remember, anytime you posit a piece of evidence or a piece of data against the unbeliever's perspective, He's going to interpret those pieces of data in a way that's consistent with his presuppositions. And in like fashion, that's what we're going to do as well. Okay. We all have, as it is, uh, you know, popularly said, we all have our rescuing devices. Um, and th there's nothing in principle wrong with having a rescuing device. I, I suppose it's kind of a, it's the nature of the apologetic situation. It's the nature of the philosophical situation. We have ultimate commitments. We have presuppositions that affect our interpretation. And when someone throws a monkey wrench into our system, we regiment our thinking so as to make consistent this apparent wrench in the system with our ultimate presuppositions. Okay. Everybody does that. That's you know, no one. There's never a time where people don't do that. Okay. That's very important to, to, to keep in mind. All right. Okay. The unbeliever's way of thinking is characterized as follows. Now, this is point five. Okay. Now, I want to stop here. Okay. When we are discussing, when Dr. Bonson is discussing the nature of the apologetic situation, it is impossible for a Christian to consistently discuss the nature of the apologetic situation independent of what the Bible has to say about the apologetic situation. Okay, I'm going I'm to say that again. You can't really understand the proper nature of the apologetic situation without considering what the Bible has to say. Now, that is not to say that you have to quote a bunch of scriptures to the effect that, well, the natural man does not understand spiritual things. The Bible says a fool says in his heart that there is no God. Look, you're a fool. There are appropriate contexts in which, yeah, you can do something to that effect. But um, whether you say it or whether it's information playing in the background of your mind, you must understand the nature of the apologetic situation from within the context of the Bible. Because the Bible, while not an apologetics textbook, tells us the nature of the unbeliever, the nature of the effects of sin upon the unbeliever's thinking. It gives us a glimpse into the hearts of unregenerate men and women, and that should inform the manner in which we engage with them. Be careful with the love of philosophy that separates scripture, right? Well, we can't really talk about scripture. Let's talk about this from a philosophical perspective. No, 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 no. Our philosophy, and Dr. Bonson would support this, our philosophy must be one that is derived from the scriptures and always takes into consideration what scripture has to say with respect to whatever we're engaging in, whether it's our personal study in theology or it's the apologetic interaction, okay? And so point five here, 
Dr. Bonson points out, he says, um, pardon, he says, uh, the unbeliever's way of thinking is characterized as follows. By nature, the unbeliever is the image of God and therefore inescapably religious. His heart testifies continually, as does also the clear revelation of God around him to God's existence and character. These statements by Dr. Bonson are grounded in biblical principles. This is important because my apologetic will take on a different flavor if I engage the apologetic situation with the knowledge of what is going on with the unbeliever. Is the unbeliever ignorant of God? Or is there in some way, shape, or form, however difficult it may be to describe, a sort of knowledge of God that is being suppressed? Well, if the unbeliever is not ignorant of the God I'm speaking of, but it to some degree has a sort of knowledge in which that knowledge due, through, uh, due to sinful suppression is being uh, uh, pushed down, that is going to affect the nature of the approach that I'm going to take. I want to engage in apologetics in a way that takes into consideration those biblical truths about the unbeliever. Now, again, that doesn't mean that I'm going to quote these passages to the unbeliever, but it most definitely will be playing in the background what the Bible says about the unbeliever. Okay. Um, and that's very important. Letter B, but the unbeliever exchanges the truth for a lie. That's biblical. He is a fool. That's biblical. Whether, you know, and people say, well, I wouldn't call him a fool. I understand. I'm not, I don't, when I don't, when I talk to them, I'm like, you fool. But it's in the background of my mind that what, no matter how highfalutin, how uh, intellectually astute the unbeliever is, the Bible tells me that any position that is not grounded in the truth of Christ is foolishness. And so I mean that respectfully. I don't mean that in a pejorative sense, like, oh, you know, the unbeliever is an idiot or he's, you know, he's stupid. He's just so foolish. That's not what the Bible means. And that's not what I, that's not what I mean when I say, hey, the, this is what the Bible says. The Bible says the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Um, there's a context for understanding that, but the Bible must inform how I view the nature of the situation between the believer and unbeliever. Okay. So, but the unbeliever exchanges the truth for a lie. He is a fool who refuses to begin his thinking with reverence for the Lord. He will not build upon Christ's self-evidencing words and suppresses the unavoidable revelation of God and nature. Okay. Again, that's biblical. I don't know why when presuppositionalists engage with classical apologists, there's like a dispute here. No, the, the Bible teaches that there is a knowledge of God that men have and suppress. Okay. And that should inform the way we engage them. Let us see. Because he delights not in understanding the unbeliever, but chooses to serve the creature rather than the creator, the unbeliever is self-confidently committed to his own ways of thought. Being convinced that he could not be fundamentally wrong, he flaunts perverse thinking and challenges the self-attesting word of God. That is the nature of the situation. Okay. Um, and again, we too are committed to our own ways of thinking, but our own ways of thinking, let me qualify. We're not committed to our own ways of thinking. We're committed to the ways of thinking express, expressed in scripture. But the difference is the ways of thinking expressed in scripture is grounded upon the very wisdom and revelation of God and the own ways of thought that is being described of the unbeliever is grounded not on the firm rock of God's revelation, but on the shifting sands of human autonomy. Okay, letter D. Consequently, uh, the unbeliever's thinking uh, results in ignorance and, and in his darkened and futile mind. Uh, let me see if I could actually, um, huh. Okay. So there's this weird thing on my screen. 
that I cannot turn the page. Let me see, unless I do a whole thing. Okay, I'm going to stop there. So, so basically, um, uh, Dr. Bonson is highlighting the fact that the Bible speaks of the mind of the unbeliever as darkened and futile. His mind is dark and futile. His dead is trespasses and sin. The noetic effects of sin, the sin upon the mind, is something very real. And so the nature of the apologetic situation is one of suppression of the truth. Okay. Now, here's what Dr. Bonson is not saying. And unfortunately, many presuppositionalists engage in this sort of thing. Mr. Unbeliever, you know God exists. You're just suppressing God and, and you're just a big old liar. That's not what presuppositionalists are saying. Okay. Uh, Dr. Bonson's entire doctoral dissertation was actually on the apologetic implications of self-deception. There is an element in which self-deception is going on within the mind and heart of the unbeliever. Okay. So there are different ways to kind of approach that. It's not as simplistic as saying, well, you're a liar. You really know that God exists. There are a lot of different factors that are kind of playing into the situation. Okay. So um, I'm actually going to, uh, I apologize. I'm not going to share my screen anymore because there's kind of a weird thing I have to do to um, turn the page. So I'm going to actually go into the physical book and just kind of read through the other points here. Let me see here. All right. How about I use the table of contents? That'll actually be better. There we go. So arguments, how to defend, summary. Let's see here, page 55. Bear with me. You guys are so patient. Thank you so much. Uh, no. Okay. I don't know what the physical page is. This is embarrassing. My bad. Hold on. Let me see here. Tools of apologetics. Hmm. Sorry. Well, uh, let me see. Where is it? Oh, man. Okay. If I put this up on the screen, the summary of chapters 13 through 17. So it should be here. Now let's see here. Ah, ah. Okay, I found it. My bad. <laughs> okay. All right, so let me remove this from the screen. Uh, we ended on letter D. The unbeliever's way of thinking. Okay, good. Got it. So let me get rid of this. Okay. Um, and just please pardon, I'm going to be reading from the physical copy here. So, so letter D fully says, consequently, the unbeliever's thinking results in ignorance. In his darkened, futile mind, he actually hates knowledge um, because it's grounded in God. Uh, and can gain only a knowledge falsely so-called. Letter E, to the extent that he actually knows anything, it is due to his unacknowledged dependence upon the suppressed truth about God within him. This renders the unbeliever intellectually schizophrenic by his espoused way of thinking. He actually opposes himself and shows a need for a radical change of mind, which uh, relates to the idea of repentance, unto a genuine knowledge of the truth. Now, Dr. Bonson's comments here, uh, and Van Til, when he argues along those lines, um, are often very much misconstrued um, and people misunderstand what's being said here. And they conclude that, hey, uh, Van Til or Bonson taught that the unbeliever doesn't know anything at all. All right. Uh, so only within a Christian perspective that you could have genuine knowledge. And so therefore, unbelievers just don't know diddly squat. Well, actually, that is a common misconception of, of presuppositionalism. 
Dr. Bonson would be the first to admit that unbelievers know all sorts of things. Um, unbelievers are are very smart. They have, uh, um, in some cases, ginormous intellects and have contributed much uh, to the realm of, of intellectual development, technology, science, medicine. Uh, there's no denying the contributions, the intellectual contributions uh, to the edifice of knowledge by many unbelievers. That is not what Van Til is saying, and that is not what Bonson is saying. What Bonson is speaking of with respect to unbelievers opposing themselves is when they, um, uh, when we consider what would result if taken the unbelieving foundations of unregenerate thought, what are the logical implications of that? If what the unbeliever says is true about the nature of reality, how knowledge is gained, how we should live our lives, those three important worldview elements, metaphysics, epistemology, and ethics, if what the unbeliever says is true, then knowledge would be impossible. But here's the problem. Bonson is saying, Van Til is saying, unbelievers never argue consistently with their foundation. And this is where Bonson often appeals to, and, and Van Til as well, to borrowed capital. The unbeliever borrows concepts and principles from the Christian worldview, even when they're arguing against the Christian worldview. And it's the job of the apologist to gently point that out. Well, wait a second, Mr. Unbeliever. Uh, when you use that line of reasoning, that it actually seems to be inconsistent with your own presuppositions. How do you reconcile? I'm, I'll give a basic a basic uh, thing here. I know, I know that there are different atheists from, they have different perspectives, but let's suppose you were a metaphysical naturalist. Um, you believe matter in motion, uh, yet you are appealing to the laws of logic. Uh, Bonson would say, well, wait a minute. How do uh, immaterial conceptual laws fit within a worldview perspective, if this person was a metaphysical naturalist and a physicalist, everything is, is material. How does that fit within your perspective? Okay. If the unbeliever says, well, it fits into my perspective because the laws of logic are reduced to uh, material connections and, and functions of the brain, then there's a, there's a giant critique that the presuppositionalist could lodge against that position. If the materialist says, well, the laws of logic are these immaterial conceptual laws, then you have an inconsistency with the notion that all is matter in motion, yet you're appealing to these immaterial laws of thought. And so you show the conflict there. Suppose you say, well, you know, I'm going to take the nominalist approach. Now, uh, nominalism uh, would, I don't want to get too highfalutin. Maybe some people may or may not be familiar with nominalism. But for those who are well-versed in, in philosophical categories, uh, nominalism is a position that denies the existence, <clears throat> pardon, denies the existence of universals, okay? Um, and so uh, universals like logic is not a universal principle in that abstract way, that, uh, but rather it's just a name we put on certain categories, right? So um, if you take nominalism, there's cr criticisms that the presuppositionalists could lodge. So the whole point is showing not that knowledge is impossible in the sense that the unbeliever knows nothing, rather the unbeliever knows many things, but cannot on his own principle account for the things he claims to know, okay? And that's why you have folks like Saiten Bruggenkate. Whether you like Saiten Bruggenkate, whether you love Saiten Bruggenkate, whether you hate Saiten Bruggenkate, whether you can't stand Saiten Bruggenkate, whatever the case may be, I think he is onto the truth of what I'm saying when he asks these sorts of questions, okay? Where do you get truth in a non-Christian worldview? When he asks these simple questions, actually is some in a simple way really applying this principle of how do you get something like truth knowledge logic science from a worldview that rejects what we're arguing is the only foundation for those things okay and the point is to cause the unbeliever to step back and consider and say 
well, how do I make sense out of these things? Okay. Um, and hopefully that's an opportunity where you can engage, interact, um, and, and hopefully transition to uh, pointing out to the, the need of the gospel, the need of repentance and the renewal, not just of your soul and your standing before God, but the renewal of your very, of the very mind of the unbeliever uh, himself. Okay. Very important. Now, uh, let me go through a couple of a couple points here. I'll skip over a couple. I'm going to skip over to page 79 in Always Ready. And, and the category there is entitled The Procedure for Defending the Faith. So what is the actual procedure? So he sets up the um he sets up the the nature of the apologetic um situation. The second category, he goes through some of the requirements of the apologist and talks about um trusting in the word of God, the character of the Christian. Um, he, he, he considers all those things and then he moves into the area of the actual procedure itself. And so point one, he says, realizing that the unbeliever is holding back the truth and unrighteousness. And he's speaking to the Christian. And so that's why he's speaking so boldly. If you're an unbeliever listening to this, you'd be like, well, that's ridiculous. Well, Dr. Bonson is talking to believers who presuppose the truth of the Bible. And when they read ideas like this that are taught in the Bible, the unbeliever is going to affirm them. And as we engage in apologetics, we want to do so in a way that is consistent with what the Bible says. So uh, just keep that in mind. So point one, the procedure for defending the faith. Dr. Bonson says, realizing that the unbeliever is holding back the truth in unrighteousness, the apologist should reject the foolish presuppositions implicit in critical questions and attempt to educate his opponent. Sorry. <clears throat> Actually, uh, give me one second. I might need a cup. I can get some water. One second. There we go. All right. Has anyone noticed anything different about me this episode? Anybody notice? What do I usually wear? Right? I'm not wearing my collared shirts. <laughs> People make fun of me sometimes. Oh, you always wear those collared shirts. I'm going rogue. I just wearing a plain old gray t-shirt, right? Kind of in a relaxed, comfort comfortable mode. All right. So I got my water. Just give me a second here. Thank you so much. I'm a teacher, so I'm like talking all day. And so I'm kind of feeling the <coughs> in the back of my throat. All right. So, uh, okay. So point one, realizing that the unbeliever is holding back the truth and unrighteousness, the apologist should reject the foolish presuppositions implicit in critical questions and attempt to educate his opponent. Again, this is not from a sarcastic, demeaning, uh, you know, I'm better than you perspective. It's rather from the perspective of highlighting the insufficiency of the unbeliever's foundation. Okay. And in that sense, we educate the unbeliever by pointing the unbeliever to their own foundation and showing, listen, if you want to take a position that is independent of the authority of Christ, here is what will result. And you show what we often say in logic and which has been pointed out by Redefine living. Thank you. Uh, it is it is to point out a, um, a reductio ad absurdum. Provide an internal critique and show that given the principles of the unbeliever's perspective, if they were true, you couldn't have the things you want like knowledge, science, philosophy, mathematics, all these sorts of things. And that's even true even when the unbeliever says, yeah, but I do all those things. Yeah, you do do all those things. But you are unable to account for your doing those things given your unbelieving presuppositions. Now, in defense of the unbeliever for a moment, to say to the unbeliever that you cannot account for counting, like Van Til said, or you cannot account for science 
or you cannot account for mathematics, or you cannot account for logic, given your unbelieving worldview perspective. The complaint by many unbelievers, I think, is a valid one. When they say, you cannot simply say that my worldview cannot account for this, that, or the other thing, and think that that proves your point, okay? As apologists, we need to go beyond making mere assertions. If you say the unbeliever cannot account for, say, um, absolute ethical norms, uh, if we're saying the unbeliever cannot account for universal, conceptual, immaterial laws, if you're saying that the um, unbeliever cannot account for the uniformity of nature within uh, his worldview perspective, you're going to have to unpack that for the person. And that's just part of 1 Peter 3.15, always being ready. I mean, you need, if you're a presuppositionalist, you're thinking along these lines, you need to be ready to unpack some of those things uh, because it is completely understandable that when many presuppositionalists use a lot of these popular slogans uh, in, you know, from these books and stuff, uh, I under, completely understand why the unbeliever says, what are you talking about? You're crazy, dude. Uh, you didn't prove it. You just asserted it. And unfortunately, that's what many presuppositionalists do. They simply assert the truth of their position um, and they don't actually get into the weeds and explain to um, uh, the person why what they're saying is the case, okay? All right, uh, let's see here. So point two, uh, this involves presenting the facts, okay? And, and when, when Bonson says educating the unbeliever, uh, it includes, here he says, it involves presenting the facts within the context of the biblical philosophy of fact. So part of the apologetic procedure is not only to point out the insufficiency of the unbeliever's worldview for providing the preconditions for intelligible experience it doesn't just include, look, your worldview doesn't do it, but it also includes the extra added step that here's why the Christian worldview can. That part is vitally important because another correct criticism that unbelievers pose against uh, uh, presuppositionalist argumentation <clears throat> especially as manifested in kind of the popular arena of the internet and Facebook interactions and things like that. You do not demonstrate the truth of your position merely by pointing out the insufficiency of someone else's view. I'll say that again. You do not demonstrate the truth of your position merely by pointing out the insufficiency of someone else's position. It is not enough to show that the unbeliever cannot account for the things that he thinks he could account for. We also need to present the case in which Christianity does in fact provide for those things. Remember, it's worldview system versus worldview system. Christian, unbeliever. Christian says, you can't account for these things in your system. And hopefully, hopefully, you know, the ideal situation, we're able to demonstrate that. And the unbeliever says, well, that doesn't show that your view can, can. And of course, at that point, you need to engage in presenting the facts of the matter within a consistently Christian worldview perspective and show that given Christian presuppositions, we can, in fact, provide uh, the preconditions for intelligible experience. So point two, under the procedure for defending the faith, Dr. Bonson says this involves presenting the facts within the context of the biblical philosophy of fact. And he lists a couple of points here. God is sovereign. He is the sovereign determiner of possibility and impossibility. A proper reception and understanding of the facts requires submission to the lordship of Christ. Thus, the facts will be significant to the unbeliever only if he has a presuppositional change of mind from darkness to light, which is what we hope 
for the unbeliever, that God grants repentance, as 2 Timothy 2.24 uh, teaches, and God grants belief, Philippians 1.29. Okay, so there is an element of uh, rational argumentation, but a necessity of the work of the Spirit in the heart and mind of the people that we're speaking with. Okay, and this is really uh, the big difference that Bonson also highlights, uh, which he makes a distinction between proof and persuasion. If we successfully lay out this case and we uh, refute the unbeliever's foundations, we show that given the truth of his perspective, he can't make sense out of anything. And then we provide the positive case and we we demonstrate that Christianity provides these preconditions and we you know give our argument and we've successfully demonstrated if in fact you've done so. Um, that doesn't mean the person is going to be persuaded because there's a difference between proving and persuading. And the persuasion... While I want to argue persuasively as best I can, I want to be uh, winsome in my approach. I want to show love and respect to the person. I want to take the time to hear them out and see where they're coming from and understand uh, the various things that they're grappling with. But at the same time, um, in doing that, I acknowledge that ultimately speaking, the ultimate persuasion that will result in repentance and uh, and faith in Jesus Christ is going to be the result of the work of the Holy Spirit, okay? And our prayer uh, uh, for unbelievers is not simply that, oh, I'm going to destroy this person in debate or I'm going to kind of, you know, get my point in in this comment thread or whatever. No, our prayer should be that God has mercy and grants repentance and removes that heart of stone and gives them a heart of flesh. That should be our prayer. And the fact that we pray those things reflects our genuine love for people who do not know Christ. And I must highlight that, okay? There is a, a, a very important role of love in apologetics. What is your apologetics about if you are not um, uh, loving the person that you're engaging, okay? We say this in popular parlance, right? You know, when we talk about hell and, uh, you know, hellfire and brimstone and judgment, and we say, well, I'm saying this because I love you. Uh, but sometimes we don't demonstrate love consistently. Love is not simply telling people that there is a righteous God who will bring judgment unless we repent. It also includes how we engage the individual, okay? So again, all of these points are kind of connected with the procedure, okay? Almost finished here. Um, Bonson also says, uh, the unbeliever's espoused presuppositions, the espoused presuppositions should be forcefully attacked, okay? The unbeliever's espoused presuppositions Presuppositions should be forcefully attacked, asking whether knowledge is possible given the truth of those presuppositions. Now, don't get it twisted. To forcefully attack presuppositions is not the same as forcefully attacking the person, okay? You want to stick with the presuppositions, showing respect to the person, but at the same time showing, hey, if what you're saying is true in your God-denying position, here's what happens, okay? Here's the results, okay? Okay. Bonson says, in order to show that God has made foolish the wisdom of the world, the believer can place himself on the unbeliever's position and answer him according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own conceits. That is, demonstrate the outcome of unbelieving thought with its assumptions. Okay? This is part of what Bonson calls the two-step approach to apologetics, and that is based upon uh, the scripture passage in Proverbs 26, where we do not answer the fool according to his folly, lest we be a fool like unto him. But on the other hand, we answer the fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own conceit. Assume hypothetically the truth of what the unbeliever is saying and show, given those unbelieving presuppositions, here's what happens. 
okay? And we invite, we invite the unbeliever to assume the Christian position and show that given the truth of Christian presuppositions, look how we can make sense out of all the things that you value. Um, you know, logic, science, love, relationships, transcendence, all these sorts of things. Um, and again, what you focus on will depend on who you're talking with, right? Um, you know, you might talk about aesthetics and beauty with someone over a cup of coffee. You're not always going to be talking about transcendentals and logical categories and things like that. Okay. I think that's the beauty of, of a presuppositional approach is that you can start with the unbeliever literally anywhere. Take any item of belief that the unbeliever finds intelligible. And we simply ask what worldview provides the necessary preconditions for that very thing you take for granted. Okay. All right. Uh, Bonson goes on to say, and I'll stop here. This is kind of the last point here. There's, there's more, but I'm going to stop here uh, and then take some questions. Uh, Bonson goes on to say that the unbelievers claims should be reduced to impotence and impossibility by an internal critique of his system. Internal critique is kind of a, a, a Bonsonian buzz, uh, buzzword. Okay. Um, internal critique of a system that is demonstrate the ignorance of unbelief by arguing from the impossibility of anything contrary to Christianity. And that's just in essence to summarize the transcendental argument. Okay. Now, whether you agree with it, whether you're down with Bonson's form of argumentation or presuppositionalism, that's what we're trying to do. It's an all or nothing approach. Um, without Christianity, can't make sense out of anything. Okay. How do we demonstrate this? We show, given the unbeliever's presuppositions, he can't make sense out of anything. And then we go on to show that given the believer's presuppositions and outlook, we could make sense out of human experience, intelligible experience, logic, science. We have a foundation for all these sorts of things that are super important uh, to uh, to human beings. Okay. So again, so that's kind of a basic outline of, of Bonson's approach, the presuppositional approach as well. Um, and uh, hopefully that that sort of makes sense. I highly encourage people to, uh, to, to pick up this book if they haven't already. I mean, most people who are studying presuppositionalism have the book, uh, but study the outlines. I think that's very important. It, it allows us to create a context for the apologetic engagement and really kind of um, know where to attack our opponent. And I don't mean that in a pejorative sense. We're attacking anything that raises itself up against the knowledge of God and showing that it has no foundation. Okay. We do it lovingly. We do it respectfully. We do not do it sarcastically and demeaning. We show uh, respect to our opponent. He's made in the image of God. Our prayer is not to destroy the individual. Our prayer is that God mercifully uh, redeems this person through the power of his spirit. Okay. All right. Well, that is my breakdown of Bonson. And um, I'm going to take one more sip of water here. Ah, okay. If you're enjoying um, the content, uh, please like the video. That that helps. Uh, and share the videos. Um, you know, if you don't if you don't like the videos that I put out and you want to critique them, feel free to do that as well. Um, I'm just happy that people are engaging uh, the content. Um, and I appreciate, um, all the support. So thank you for liking. If you haven't liked, be sure to like, um, and all of these, uh, podcasts, uh, I'm sorry, YouTube episodes are also transferred over to the podcast. So I'll be updating that as well. So folks who listen to the podcast on iTunes. All right. Okay. So let me go back to the top and let's see here. Okay. Let's see. Do, 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 do. Uh, let's see. Got a couple of questions. Uh, oh yeah, thank you. This is not a question, but Nate reminds us, Always Ready is actually available in audiobook uh, form on Spotify. So you want to check that out, okay? And I think you can go on iTunes as well and uh, 
download it there as well. So you can listen to an audiobook version of it. Um, that's super helpful to me because I'm an audio learner uh, primarily. So that might be useful to folks. Um, all right. So uh, Wolves Do Apologetics, my, my good friend John Dunphy. Um, asks, uh, the question, does presuppositional apologetics rely on reformed theology? Um, if you were watching the earlier part of this video, I did say that, um, yes, uh, it does. There's actually a video on my channel where I address this with Dr. James Anderson. And we talk a little bit about the, um, reformed foundations of the presuppositional methodology. I also had, uh, what's his name? Oh my goodness. His name's escaping me. Um, Emilio Ramos. There we go. Emilio Ramos. Um, I had him on to talk about the connections of Reformed theology uh, to um, presuppositional apologetics. Yes. So not everyone agrees with this. As I said, there are even some Eastern Orthodox folks, Roman Catholic folks um, who try to use presuppositional methodology. Um, I don't think that it's consistent uh, with those approaches for reasons that would probably be too much to go into at this moment. But um, it is it, it is wrapped up in a whole host of assumptions that is made by Reformed theology that allows the presuppositional apologetic methodology to, to take the shape that it does. So I would say that it's very much connected um, with Reformed theology. Okay, thank you for that question. Uh, let's see here. Okay. So he follows up. Okay, good. So why is it inconsistent with Eastern Orthodoxy? Okay. Um, well, um, without getting into too much of the weeds, cause I, I suppose everything I say can, uh, there can be pushback given. Um, but, uh, presuppositional methodology presupposes a reformed understanding of divine meticulous sovereignty. Okay. So uh, the Calvinist, uh, traditional Calvinistic um, understanding of, of meticulous sovereignty of God and control of God um, is wrapped up in the idea that he is uh, the definer and sovereign king over meaningfulness and cogency and intelligibility. Um, and so this would be connected also um, with uh, the nature of the will. So those within the Eastern Orthodox tradition tend to uh, promote a libertarian perspective, which actually is connected to... Um, uh, presuppositional apologetics. So a denial of libertarian free will is connected to a particular understanding of meticulous sovereignty, which forms the bedrock of a lot of the forms of argumentation that presuppositionalism uses. That's why Van Til called God the all conditioner. Okay. Um, because God decrees everything that comes to pass in detail and defines all things, there is nothing outside the, uh, the realm of his sovereignty. And we would argue that libertarian categories um, and things like that um, will have negative implications when you're trying to apply this method um, consistently, okay? Um, and again, that gets into the whole debates on free will and things like that, I know. Uh, again, was, you ask that question, you kind of let the cat out of the bag and there's a whole other sorts of, of debates. But yes, there is a, a connection there. Um, there is a book, it's not written by a presuppositionalist, but it's called, and, and, and John, you might wanna be, uh, you, you might wanna pick this up if you don't have it already, there's a book called Mapping Apologetics. I think it's called Mapping Apologetics. I have it in, in the other room. I, I won't run and get it, but you can look on, on Amazon. There is a section in which the author, I think, does a beautiful job summarizing the, um, the presuppositional methodology. And there's a whole section in there where he explores the connection between uh, Van Til's reformed theological commitments and his view on how that affects 
the presuppositional methodology. He, I think while he doesn't hold to a presuppositional methodology, the author of that book, he sees the necessary connection that Van Til was trying to make with Reformed theology and the presuppositional methodology. Okay? All right. Let's continue on. Do, 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 do. Okay. A liquid cryo asks the question, what is the best argument for Christian presuppositionalism versus other religions? Um, well, here's the beauty of the presuppositional approach. Um, when I am arguing against an atheist or an agnostic using a presuppositional approach, I don't somehow change my approach when I'm arguing with a person from or adhere it from another religion. The method is the same, right? Answer not the fool, answer the fool. The method is the same. Worldview versus worldview. The method is the same. Your worldview is insufficient to ground intelligibility. Here's why. Christianity provides the necessary preconditions for intelligible experience. Here's why, okay? The only difference is not that I'm giving a different argument. My critiques will emphasize different things. So I may critique the atheist in a with different emphasis than I would critique, say, the Muslim or the Buddhist, okay? Um, the argument is the same. Given the presuppositions of Buddhism, intelligibility would be impossible. Given the presuppositions of Islam, intelligibility would be impossible. How? You bring out certain illustrations. You can go the philosophical route and appeal to the the necessity of the Trinity and, and issues of the one and the many, or you can go by way of internal critiquing the, uh, the uh, Muslim perspective. So for example, um, in Islam, it is possible for Allah to lie, okay? Now, I'm not going to go into huge details here, but if you affirm that your God, who is the foundation of your worldview perspective, if you affirm that your God can lie in the way that Islam teaches, then that actually throws a monkey wrench into your epistemology, your theory of knowledge, how we know what we know. Because your foundation actually is able to deceive you, okay? Whereas in the Bible, the word of God says it is impossible for God to lie. And so uh, in an, at an epistemological level, the argument, how do you know your God's not lying to you, doesn't fly with the Christian because it's impossible for God to lie. Whereas I can turn that around on the Muslim and actually um, create a wedge between what God, uh, what God may be doing, he may be deceiving you, and what you think you know. Deception is possible there, and so uh, that actually would uh, allow to creep into the door elements of skepticism that will not be sufficient to provide the necessary preconditions for knowledge uh, and things like that. So my approach to the Muslim will be something along those lines. Uh, my approach to the Mormon, okay? You can go the biblical route, both with the Muslim and the Mormon, okay? They affirm the Bible. Then take what you both affirm and show that there are inconsistencies with what you affirm uh, in scripture and the specific theological convictions of their particular religious perspective. And then you engage in internal critique. Okay. Um, and you do this with every perspective. Now here's the, here's the thing. You don't know every perspective. I don't know the details of every single Hindu and every variation of Hinduism, but that's why when you're doing apologetics, you are engaging in conversation relationship. You're asking genuine questions because you want to understand where the person's coming from. When you learn what that person's position is, for the most part, with respect to their foundations, uh, then you engage in various internal critique, which will do the same job 
as what you would do when you're engaging the atheist. So it's not what is the best argument for Christian presuppositional presuppositionalism versus other religions. The argument's the same. It's just a different emphasis depending on who you're, you're speaking with. Okay. And in a sense, I think that's what the, the beauty of the presuppositional method is. All right. A transcendental argument is not just an argument against atheists. Transcendental argument can be applied to any non-Christian category of thought. That's why Van Til said, um, yeah, there are many worldviews, but ultimately when you really boil down to things, to the, its foundation, there's only really two worldviews, the Christian worldview and the non-Christian worldview. And every single um, individual religion or atheistic philosophy or whatever, it all is clumped into the non-Christian worldview and they all share the same deficiency. Uh, which is uh, autonomy. Uh, they're not standing on the shore rock of God's word. And we could, given internal critique, demonstrate their insufficiency. Now, again, I'm just saying that in passing, uh, that may be difficult to do at times and, and requires some grappling and uh, understanding certain things. But generally speaking, that's how uh, we could approach other religious perspectives. Okay. All right. Let's see here. Let's see. Do, 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 do. Yeah, uh, Aaron says, uh, yes, <laughs> there are so many Christian jerks today. That's that's actually true. Uh, I agree. Uh, and he says it's the gist of my upcoming book. Hey, books like this need to be written, uh, you know, a Christian character as it relates to Christian apologetics. There was a really cool book um, that I read. It was called, um, and folks, if you're, if you're Reformed, you might actually appreciate this book. It's actually called Killing Calvinism killing Calvinism. And basically it's a book written by a Calvinist and he kind of just surveys the sorts of things that's hurting the Calvinistic cause. And he talks a little bit about cage stagers and narrow mindedness and things like that. And really kind of um, uh, helps us appreciate people who disagree with us while still holding to our reformed convictions. And, um, and it teaches us how to avoid making reformed theology look bad as it relates to how we present it. Okay. You might think reformed theology is bad just because of its theology, but that, that's another issue. But killing Calvinism uh, is, is a pretty good book that, that follows uh, that line of thinking. All right. Okay. Let's move along. Do, 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 do. Let's see. Uh, let's see. Christian worldview must Yeah, so Augerer, I do apologize. I don't know how to say the name, but he uh, he or she says it should be noted there's no mention or proof of determinism. Oh, well, again, that, that's a claim, and there are um, multiple arguments for determinism, and you do not refute the arguments for determinism by simply retorting, well, you were determined to say that. OK, uh, that that line of our and I'm not saying this gentleman or, or I don't know who this is, but I'm not saying that that's what they would say. But that is a popular line of reasoning against uh, a Calvinistic a form of determinism, compatibilism. It just doesn't um, it just doesn't pass muster. There are robust presentations and arguments in favor of determinism, uh, both philosophically and biblically. Um, if people want to dive into that topic, I had uh, two excellent discussions with uh, a French Calvinist philosopher by the name of Guillaume Bignon, and we discussed this directly by um, responding to proponents of libertarian free will, and he engages in objections and questions um, that relate to the, to the defense of uh, determinism. If you want to listen to a discussion on that topic that's more clear and not spoken by a person who has a very strong French accent, sorry, Guillaume, um, you want to check out my um, my discussion with Michael Preciado, 
where we talk about the nature of free will. And he unpacks uh, why why we believe determinism is philosophically cogent. Um, and I think he goes into some of the biblical uh, reasoning behind that as well. Okay. So I would just disagree uh, at this point. Okay. So Nate asked the question, how would you use a presuppositional apologetic when teaching Christian doctrine to other believers? Let's say the personhood of the spirit, for example. Uh, yeah. Th now, this is a really good question, Nate. Um, and it's actually wrapped up and related to one of my favorite definitions of presuppositional apologetics. Okay. Um, Scott Oliphant in his uh, book, Covenantal Apologetics, I think it was Covenantal Apologetics. He defined apologetics or the presuppositional apologetics in this way. And it's related to your question. He says that Christian apologetics or presuppositional apologetics is Christian theology applied to the area of unbelief. Apologetics is Christian theology applied to unbelief. So we are applying systematic theological truths to the specific area of the nature of unbelief and how we should engage that. And so the way we engage unbelievers is with a strong consideration of the, theolo the theological backdrop of, of the Christian worldview, okay? So say you're talking about the personhood of the spirit, for example. Remember, Vantil said that we discuss the system. And so it's very important to understand the personhood of the spirit within the broader context of the triune nature and personality of God, okay? God being the ultimate metaphysical foundation of all things is very important because that means at the very base of reality, what you have is not impersonality, but personality and rationality, right? So the spirit functions within the context of the Trinity, which provides the personal foundation and relational foundation for uh, creatures made in his image. And so you can come at the personhood of the personhood of the spirit from that perspective. Of course, those who deny the personhood of the spirit or perhaps are grappling with that notion, uh, you take them to scripture. And of course, when you take folks to scripture within the context of teaching Christian doctrine, when you take them to scripture, that will be wrapped up in the notion of the authority of scripture, which is very much a big part of presuppositional thought. Everything we do with respect to apologetics, with respect to theological reflection, should be grounded in the authority of God's word and not by human speculation. Okay, we can engage in human speculation with respect to certain theological and apologetical topics, but when it all, when we get down to the bottom line, it's scripture that informs what we believe about the personhood of the spirit, uh, the nature of the son, the nature of the father, the triune God, right? His, uh, his um, actions and purposes in creation, um, the work of the three persons of the Trinity as it relates to salvation. All of these things are informed by the authority of God. So when you're teaching theology, it is always rooted in the authority of scripture. And of course, when you're teaching other believers who hopefully affirm the authority of scripture, uh, then they can engage some of these more specified topics like the person of the spirit with the heart of, well, what does the word of God say here? And how does this make sense to me? And how should this apply to uh, my Christian experience? Okay. So I would use the a presuppositional apologetic approach by teaching this person of the spirit as a single fact within a broader system that's grounded in the authority of God. Okay. And of course you can make that application. You know, you pivot from the specifics person of the spirit to the broader system. Okay. And show how that broader system is uh, essential to making sense out of that 
specific piece of data that you're talking about, maybe the person of the spirit or some other doctrine. Okay. All right. Thank you for that question. Uh, do, 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 do. Let's see here. Uh, yes, not a question, but a good statement. Redefine uh, living says all uh, facts are derivational from God. That's right. God is the ultimate fact out of which all other facts are derived. And that's important and wrapped up in determinism and God's providence and decrees. Uh, but all facts that exist uh, are derived from God and are wrapped up in his purposes. They gain their meaning from God's intended purposes uh, for creating them. Okay. And that's very much wrapped in to intelligibility. Everything has a significance and objective meaning because they are derivational of God who creates with a specific purpose. There is nothing random. There is nothing by chance or anything like that. Everything is derived from uh, the creative decrees of God. Okay. So all facts have meaning in as much as they fit into the system that is grounded in the revelation of God, which is wrapped up in his purposes and, um, and his will. Okay. All right. Thank you for that. Let's see here. Question. Do, 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 do. Uh, Josiah Stowe asks, is revelational epistemology necessary for presuppositionalism? The quick answer is yes. Okay. Presuppositional apologetic methodology or presuppositional thinking is at its very essence revelational. Okay. Um, I would say I am a revelational epistemologist. I would say everyone who is a presuppositionalist must be a revelational epistemologist because when it comes to the uh, foundations of every worldview, metaphysics, epistemology, and ethics, when you're dealing with that question, how do we know, not just God, but how do we know anything that is wrapped up in the context of revelation, which gives meaning to the specific data points that we know. So if I'm to know a data point, a piece of information, it's always understood within a revelational context, okay? So revelational epistemology, I would argue, is necessary for a presuppositional uh, methodology, all right? Uh, Reb Romans 3 asked the question, how can you use precept on discussions with Muslims? Now, I did uh, answer that question a few questions back, but here's what I, I, I want to share with you, uh, Reb Romans 3, okay? I have an entire episode that is entitled Precept Applied to Islam. And it's actually an awesome interview that I had with another Christian apologist, Anthony Rogers, who has vast experience in engaging with Muslims. And he actually talks about how you use precept not only to Muslims, but also to Jews. Okay. So that's kind of a common question as well. How do we apply presuppositionalism to Judaism uh, and not just Islam? So Look up that show, Anthony Rogers. It's entitled uh, Precept Applied to Islam. Uh, it was an excellent discussion. It's a long one, but um, if you're you know, going for a long walk or a drive, I guarantee you will learn a lot from that discussion. It was excellent. All right. All right. Let's see here. Let's see. Questions. Question, question. Yeah. Okay, good. Uh, uh, post Tenebras looks, right? I think I said it right. Post-tenebras looks, after darkness, light. <clears throat> Sorry, that is kind of a um, a very popular reformed uh, cry, right? After darkness, light. Uh, I love that that phrase there. Uh, Post-tenebras looks asked, hi, Eli, how do you explain transcendental argument to uh, a layman? Okay, easy. Okay. There is a scripture that I think captures the essence of uh, a transcendental approach. And I think it's in the book of Psalms where it says, in his light, we see light. 
Okay. In the light of God, we see light. Okay. It is only in light of what God has revealed that we can see and understand anything else. Okay. That is a very simplistic way of saying that God is necessary for us to, um, to know, to make sense out of. Okay. So I would use to a lay person, I would find certain scripture passages. I would remove all of what this, I'm guilty of this as well, because I've learned presuppositionalism through Bonson and Van Til. And so I tend to naturally use a lot of these philosophical language, but in essence, presuppositionalism, I would argue is a biblical approach. And so just as Jesus could explain a divine truth to uh, um, a farmer uh, or a simple person during the first century, in like fashion, you can take scriptures that encapsulate presuppositional principles and share that and unpack that with the individual. In his light, we see light. The beginning of knowledge is the fear of the Lord. The Bible doesn't tell us to fear God like I'm scared. There is a reverence that we are to have before God, that when we have that reverence and we come to the Lord humbly, acknowledging the supremacy of his revelation, we are then in a position to see things and understand things as they are. Okay? So I would use certain scriptures, unpack it, and make the presuppositional application without using the language of presuppositional philosophical thought categories. Okay. Again, uh, I'm guilty of using that a lot, um, unfortunately, but, um, I'm trying my best to read the scriptures and try to explain the method in biblical categories. And, uh, you know, I have a different audience than some people might have. And so just quoting scripture might be useful in, in explaining it to the people they're discussing. I interact with people who tend to be a little more philosophically minded. So, um, I use different language, but to answer your question, I would take certain scripture pas passages and unpack them for the person. Um, I think that would be very helpful. All right. Uh, Post Tenebrous Looks also goes on to say, Hi, Eli. How do you explain transcendental argument to a person who does not have a background of philosophy and theology? Um, same thing. I give I give you the same answer. And, and perhaps you can use um, unbiblical examples. Now, what I mean by unbiblical examples, I don't mean use examples or illustrations that are against the scriptures, but you can use examples that are not necessarily mentioned in scriptures, uh, uh, but they may be useful to help explain a, a, a scriptural principle that highlights the presuppositional method. So for example, Van Til was very good at this. He was, he was able to use like little ditties and little sayings that kind of paint a picture in your mind. So he used the example of pillars underneath a house. Okay. Uh, so, um, you walk into a house and you see the tables, you see the chairs and you see, you know, uh, all of the pieces of furniture. And he says, what must be true in order for these uh, items in the house to be standing? You know, what must be true for, uh, in order for us to explain why we're able to stand on the floor here? Well, there are pillars under the house. We do not see the pillars, but we know they're there because if they weren't, the house would not be standing. So he would use little illustrations like that to kind of highlight really what he was saying was providing an explanation of like a transcendental argument, right? What must be true in order for something else to be true, okay? And you can use illustrations like that. By the way, you could actually look this up, uh, Van Til quotes or uh, Van Til um, analogies or something like that. And there uh, you might find some websites that have lists of little analogies that he used to that uh, that he used to explain certain elements of presuppositional um, methodology.
All right. Moving along. Thank you so much for that. Okay. Let's see here. Uh, Big Yehuda says, I'm really desperate for non-scriptural arguments. I've been through them over and over. I need evidence. It's gnawing at me. I need something, anything I believe, but am struggling. Um, well, again, um, there's no such thing as non-scriptural arguments. What did I say at the beginning? If you remember, this is very important. Okay. Everyone has their Bible. If you're not going to understand the facts, uh, if you're not going to understand the facts within the context of the Christian worldview, then you are going to replace the Christian worldview with another worldview. There is no such thing as just the facts. There's no such thing as just evidence. Okay. You need to um, understand that evidence is always interpreted within a worldview context. There's no such thing as just the facts. Just show me the evidence. The evidence speaks for itself. No, it doesn't. And I think the problem with a lot of people who are struggling with this very question that's being asked is um, you are looking for evidence, but you are looking for evidence um, from a an intellectual posture that makes it impossible for you to actually make intelligible the very idea of evidence. You are thinking in unbelieving categories. Okay. What's my argument? That Christianity provides the necessary preconditions for the intelligibility of knowledge. Okay. That means evidence itself, the very concept of evidence, would be unintelligible unless the Christian context, which gave it meaning, were true. And so you're saying, well, I just need the evidence. And by that, you're assuming evidence independence of the, the, the scriptural foundation. Then that doesn't exist. That doesn't exist. Go to a non Christian, tell them, show me the evidence. Then come back and see whether that evidence actually can be made made sense of independent of a Christian worldview. Can't be done. Can't be done. So I, I understand that it's gnawing at you, and I sympathize with what you're saying, but I want you to understand the power of what I'm saying. If a presuppositional understanding is true, what I've been saying is correct, okay? Listen to me, Big Yehuda. Everything is evidence for God. Everything that is more profound than saying, show me evidence over here. I'm arguing everything is evidence for God. You can't make sense out of anything without the context of God's revelation. Scott Oliphant in a, a radio interview, he says this, he says that presuppositionalists are eminently evidentialist in that we believe literally everything is evidence for God. And I truly believe that. God has created everything. All derivational facts has the meaning and significance that it has because it is placed within the purposes and plans of God. God has revealed these things to us. We can know them. We can uh, make sense out of them. Don't look for evidence independence of a context. It doesn't exist. If you're going to reject the scriptural argument, then what you're going to do is replace scripture with some other sets of scripture. Maybe that might be a different religious perspective. Maybe that might be some philosophy that you think is cool and will help you make sense out of these things. But everyone has their ultimate foundations. That's why Jesus says you're either with me or you're against me. If you're not going to stand on the firm rock of God's word, then you're going to stand on some other rock. There's no such thing as investigating these things independent of a context. Okay? So I would encourage you to go back to the drawing board and stop asking, not, don't, I, don't misconstrue me. 
Okay, this is important. All right, I'm, I'm not being overly simplistic here. Don't waste your time asking for evidence, and I'm not against evidence, but stop wasting time asking for evidence as though evidence can be understood apart from a worldview, apart from an authority, okay? If that's the way you're going, if you're searching for uh, neutral data, you're not going to find it because it doesn't exist, okay? All right. And so um, I say that strongly, but I do say that in an encouraging fashion. Um, I encourage you to keep seeking, searching, studying, and reading, but strongly consider some of the things that I've that I've just mentioned here. Okay, all right. Uh, okay, well, well, big Yehuda continues. Anything he's looking for, anything which cannot be reasonably disputed. Great. Here's what cannot be reasonably disputed. The Christian worldview is true by the impossibility of the contrary. It is the only worldview that provides the necessary precondition and intelligibility for the very concept of evidence itself. You could dispute it, not reasonably, because what's going to happen? What did we explain when we went through the outline in Bonson's book? We engage in internal critique and we bring down those strongholds. We show that on a Christian worldview, there's no foundation. Okay? So you can dispute the transcendental argument, but you can't do it reasonably in the sense that you are making a valid point and you're providing a sufficient foundation for the intelligibility of human experience, right? All right. Okay. Uh, redefine living, uh, 399 super sticker. Thank you so much for that. I appreciate that. Thank you. Uh, let's go moving here. Do, 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 do. I can't know anything about scripture. It doesn't matter. Please, it works almost. Okay, here we go. So Big Yehuda is continuing here. Bonson's argument is still circular. Well, I already explained why that's not an issue. By the way, everyone's argument at its base will be circular in as much as you have an ultimate foundation. Um, at any rate, it doesn't matter in the slightest. We can't know anything without scripture. Doesn't matter. Precept works on almost no one. Neither does evidence. Okay, hmm. Precept works on no one. That's funny. I've actually had interactions with people in which it did work. But when you say it doesn't work, you are already coming from an inappropriate perspective. I'm not concerned with what works. I'm not a pragmatist with respect to my apologetics. I want to know what's biblical, okay? I want to defend the faith faithfully, biblically, acknowledging the work of the Spirit. That being said, from a purely intellectual stance, I have engaged in common discussion with uh, people, not on the internet, face-to-face, use the presuppositional method and have made great segue uh, in, in those uh, relationships and things like that. So um, do not impose, Big Yehuda, your lack of um, exposure to instances where presuppositionalism actually makes great headway in, the, in these sorts of discussions. Don't confuse your lack of experience of that with the notion that it is kind of somewhat essential to the presuppositional method, that it just doesn't work on anyone. Okay. And again, to say work, um, you're treating apologetics as kind of a pragmatic discipline, which it's not. Okay. All right. Thank you though, for sharing that. Uh, let's see, moving along. Oh, we know anything about anything. It doesn't mean scriptures too. Do, 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 do. I'll skip. So here, skip a couple. I'm looking for a question. Here we go. <laughs> uh, is it okay if I have a Bonson shrine at my house? Uh, you know, hypothetically speaking, uh, absolutely not. By the way, I kind of put this on the screen. I know um, this person's joking, uh, but we want to be very careful <clears throat> that we do not set uh, theologians 
philosophers, scientists, uh, set them up as idols. They are human beings, imperfect, touched and tainted by sin. Um, and a good apologist, a good apologist uh, will not point to themselves, but they will point you to Christ. Okay. Um, so I know this is a joke, but um, I, I think uh, it's important to note that we need to be cautious of um, idolatry, even when we are engaging in the, like these sorts of discussions and studies and, and things like that. Okay. All right. Let's see here. Do, 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 do. Question. Um, I don't see. Oh, here we go. There we go. Let's see. <laughs> your Wi-Fi went out. Yes, I think I addressed your question, Nate. Um, unless you asked something different and I skipped it. Yeah, okay. Okay, here's a question by Julio Jimenez. Um, is the young earth position in creation necessary to be presuppositional? Um, I do not think it is necessary. Now, I tend to lean, and I've, I kind of expressed this in my previous video where I kind of laid out some of my theological beliefs. I said that I tend to lean in a young earth uh, to a young earth perspective, um, but I'm kind of open, but I, I kind of lean in that direction. But I don't think that that particular interpretation is necessary for a presuppositional approach. I know some people disagree with that. Um, but if you are an old earth creationist and you have, you, you could disagree with this, okay, but you feel you have strong biblical support for your position, which there are old earth creationists who try to use the Bible and don't appeal necessarily to like big bang cosmology and dating. They think that, Hey, given the text, here's what I think it's teaching. Okay. Now you might agree with it. You might not agree with it, but if you believe you have a strong biblical argument that is still consistent with the notion that the Bible is your ultimate authority. Okay. Um, it's just that the interpretation of say those key verses in Genesis, it's, it's not to be taken from a young earth perspective. You could hold to that and still consistently be a presuppositionalist. Okay. Now I know the, uh, the accusation, well, you're, you know, you're putting the ideas of man before God, uh, well, that depends. I mean, if the person's saying, no, 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 I'm not using arguments from science and speculation. I think given what the scripture, what it says, I think this is what it says. Now they might be wrong, but I don't think it's inconsistent with the uh, assumption of the ultimacy of scripture and the fact that scripture and revelation and God provide the context um, for the preconditions for intelligible intelligibility. Okay. So I don't think it's essential, uh, but you know, it is the case, at least in my experience, that most presuppositionalists tend to be young earth creationists. Uh, you have folks like Jason Lau, Greg Bonson was a young earth creationist. And I think Van Til was as well. Okay. All right. Let's see here. Got a couple more. I'm trying to get them all because I, I, I feel bad. Sometimes I skip some questions. There's always that one comment when I, when I end the live stream. Hey, you forgot me. So sorry. If I miss a question, it's totally not on purpose. Uh... <laughs> okay. A big Yehuda says, I apologize. Uh, you don't have to apologize. I was just speaking passionately because, um, well, I was speaking to you. I'm very passionate about this, and I mean what I say when I kind of expressed what I said there. But um, I understand. I understand. <clears throat> you want evidence, okay? Here's here's the thing. You need to uh, you need to understand this issue of context, okay? I know you're not trying to be rude. I know you're trying to just ask these important questions, and I encourage you to ask these questions and search these things out. Um, but you need to understand the importance of ultimate commitments. Where is your ultimate commitment? How does that ultimate commitment inform 
how evidence, the very concept of evidence is understood, right? And hopefully, when you're talking about that ultimate foundation, that ultimate foundation is rooted in the idea that what God has said, you believe it, trust it. I, I believe the Bible is the word of God. I believe that when I trust God's word, things fall into place, okay? Now, I know at this point I can get a little preachy, and I, I apologize, but it's it's true. Trust in the Lord, lean not in your own under on your own understanding, right? And begin to take the time to think about these things from within the context of God's word. Do you trust God's word or not? Grapple with that question, but it is a worthy question to grapple with. But what you are asking in your previous statement is impossible. You are asking for evidence that is worldview independent. It's impossible. You're asking for just the evidence, impossible. Okay? I choose to understand the evidence within the context of how God has revealed the nature of reality. Why? Because I'm a Christian. I trust the Lord. If you're not a Christian, I challenge you. Make sense out of anything without God. Can't be done. So God calls us to repentance. God calls us to submission to his word. Fall at the feet of Jesus. Live in the scriptures. And get away from, for a moment, I mean, if you I don't know, Big Yehuda, if you are a Christian and you're struggling with these sorts of things, get away for, for a moment from the apologetics and confront Jesus in the scriptures and enrich your devotional life. Seek the Lord with all your heart. And then when you are not as, if you're not in the position of losing your mind, revisit those important questions and engage them. But my answer is going to be the same to your questions. Evidence can only be made sense of within the context of God's revelation. And that is the most powerful evidence that you could ever have because it entails that everything is evidence for God. Okay. All right. And no worries, big Yehuda. I, I didn't take you as being rude or anything like that. All right. Okay. So, um, Masin Hollowell asks, can you briefly explain a Christian metaphysic? What is a Christian metaphysic? All right, that's a that's a good question. All right, when we speak of a worldview, which is that this is a word that is thrown around uh, by apologists and philosophers and things like that, but a worldview is typically made up of three foundations. Okay, you have metaphysics, epistemology, and ethics, and there are other categories, but these are foundational. Okay, when we deal with metaphysics, we are dealing with the question of reality. So if I were to say what question, what worldview question does metaphysics ask? Typically, it asks the question, what is real? Okay. Now, I'm not going to go through the other foundations, but let's take that. How, how are we informed by a Christian metaphysic? So when we ask the question, what is real or what is the nature of reality, a Christian metaphysic will answer that question while being informed by what the Bible has to say about the nature of reality. I'll, gi I'll give you an example. The Bible speaks of the material world, that which is seen, and it speaks of the invisible world, the world that is not seen. It speaks of human beings and physical creation. It also speaks of spiritual beings. So that the nature of reality, a Christian metaphysic, includes a perspective on reality that includes both the material universe and a spiritual reality. A Christian metaphysic with respect to specific um, uh, facts, for example, what, our question, what is a human being? That is a metaphysical question. So what is a Christian metaphysic? It's, it's in essence answering the question, what is the nature of man? 
And so when I answer that question, that question will be informed by what the Bible says. Man is made in the image of God. There is a physical element to him. God breathed into him the breath of life and he became a living soul. There's an immaterial element to him. So a Christian metaphysic is a theory or view of reality that is grounded and rooted in, uh, in God's revelation. So it's what God says about reality that informs what I say about reality, if that makes sense. Okay, that's a good question. Thank you for that. Okay, Let's see here. Uh, okay, well, that was the last question. Um, I would like to thank everyone who uh, joined me on this live stream. And um, whether you are a believer or not, um, I appreciate, and I've said this in the past, I've, I appreciate the fact that, um, uh, you know, uh, unbelievers and believers, they're interacting respectfully in the comments and things like that. And I think um, if you're if you're seeking after truth, it's that kind of mentality that will cater to good conversations and things like that. So thank you so much. I really do appreciate it. If you are um, really enjoying and being blessed by my content, um, I would really appreciate any support that you can give, whether it's uh, um, contributing to the Venmo that can be, uh, you can uh, contribute financially through the Revealed Apologetics website, whether it's through Super Chats or whether it's just writing a good review on iTunes. That really does um, help liking the videos, sharing the videos. Um, I really love what I do. I think it's an honor to be able to, to do this on this platform. Um, and I think it's, um, uh, we cover important topics, especially when we get to some of those important, um, interviews and discussions on specific topics. So, uh, please share this stuff and, and support if you can. Um, I greatly appreciate it. Now, before I leave, there is one more question and I'm going to make sure I don't skip it. Okay. Now this is the last question I'm going to take. And if, if another question pops in the chat, I'm not going to answer it because then I'll be here forever. So, uh, here's a question by Julio uh, Jimenez or Jimenez, if you want to say it in English. What is your answer when it is said that to presuppose God is no different than to presuppose any other transcendental invention, i.e. flying spaghetti monster? Okay. Okay. Now your question, uh, uh, the question here, it really commits a category error, or at least when people suggest, for example, the flying spaghetti monster, you said presuppose any transcendental invention, okay? A flying spaghetti monster is not transcendental in nature. As a matter of fact, a flying spaghetti monster must be composed of the physical material that comprises spaghetti or pasta. And so being a physical entity, the entity automatically is limited in scope. A flying spaghetti monster being physical must have a shape and form. If this spaghetti monster has a shape and form, it must also have a size and location. And if the spaghetti monster has location, then the spaghetti monster lacks the attribute of omniscience. And so therefore the spaghetti monster cannot be universe, a universal mind, which we would argue God is, and therefore cannot ground universal conceptual laws of thought. So the flying spaghetti monster is an insufficient transcendental foundation for universal laws of logic. The flying spaghetti monster cannot be God because God as an absolute, all conditioning, all powerful being, a flying spaghetti monster is limited by being stuck in time and space because being a physical entity, he would or she would or it would be subject to, uh, um, you know, the limitations of being a, a physical entity. So a spaghetti monster just doesn't cut it. Now, suppose the person says, yeah, 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 but my spaghetti monster is omnipresent and my spaghetti monster is omniscient. 
And my spaghetti monster is, uh, you know, all these things. And what, what you'll see is the qualifiers that will be added to the spaghetti monster will just be the traditional uh, attributes of God. And so a rose by any, any other name is still a rose. Basically, what you're saying is the flying spaghetti monster is God. And as much as you add all of these qualifiers, okay? Um, so if he's not physical, then is he really spaghetti? Okay? The concept of flying spaghetti monster is already an incoherent concept, okay? Just like an invisible pink unicorn. Invisible pink unicorn is an inco incoherent concept because if it's invisible, how can it be pink, okay? Sometimes internally critiquing some of these characters can go a long way in showing that the nature of the presuppositional claim is not merely to make the assertion that the Christian God provides the necessary preconditions for intelligibility, logic, knowledge, science, and all these other things, but that the Christian worldview can actually, this is key, can actually pay the bills on that claim. If you want to rely, now, of course, this is kind of a caricature. I don't, I don't know if there's people who exist who actually take this seriously, but let's suppose there are. If you're going to rely on the spaghetti monster as being that transcendental foundation, you need to ask the question, can the spaghetti monster pay the bills on the claim to being the transcendental necessity? Okay. And upon internally critiquing the concept, you will find that it doesn't work. And that is just to show that the presuppositional argument is not a mere assertion that can be uh, replaced with any old assertion. We assert that God is the necessary precondition, but we're doing more than merely asserting. We are claiming, and hopefully we can su successfully do so when we're interacting with the person, we are claiming that we could actually demonstrate that. Okay? All right. Thank you so much, guys. I appreciate the questions um, so much. Until next time, I'll keep folks updated on the um, the interview with Dr. Matthew Barrett um, on Sola Scriptura. I'll, I'll keep you guys updated on that. That's all for today's episode, and uh, take care. God bless. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Thank you very much for listening to Revealed Apologetics. If you have any questions that you would like me to answer um, on one of our podcast episodes, please feel free to send in your question uh, at revealedapologetics at gmail.com. Thank you.